How many of you here uh, wish you had some superpower? Um, I mean, certainly growing up, it was, I mean, <laughs> you can't go wrong with flying, right? Right? I mean, just fly anywhere. But um, I, I, think that, I think that more presently, I think teleporting, that's the way to go, right? Um, you just get anywhere instantly. I mean, you fly, you know, you still got to fly from here to there. And incidentally, I was thinking about this. If I really had a hunkering for just kind of like being in the air, flying, I mean, I could just teleport myself to some place in the sky, right, and just kind of float down until I was about to hit the ground, and I just teleport again to somewhere safe. <laughs> anyway, um, I'm asking because the th- what we're going to talk about today, uh, our subject for this morning is um, that uh, God intends for us to not be merely human. Uh, clearly, uh, we are we're fascinated uh, with the ideas of you know superpowers, right? I mean, think about the um, all the all of the material, all the content that's been created uh, in the form of uh, comic books, movies, television shows, things like that. Just imagining what would it be like if ordinary human beings actually possess certain. Um, extraordinary powers. But did you know that, like, we are called to be something more than merely human? If you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to look at the first four verses. Uh, I'd like to read them all together to begin. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Paul says to the church in Corinth, for my part, brothers and sisters, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as babies in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, since you were not yet ready for it. In fact, you are still not ready because you're still worldly. For since there is envy and strife among you, are you not worldly and behaving like Mere humans. For whenever someone says, I belong to Paul, and another, I belong to Apollos, are you not acting like, everybody say it together, mere humans? Uh, Paul calls uh, people in Corinth, this church, right? Uh, In verse 1, people of the flesh... Um, which is to be understood as something opposed to spiritual people. Now, he doesn't, he doesn't accuse them of not having the Spirit of God, right? We kind of talked about that last week. In chapter 2, Paul differentiated between those who have God's Spirit and those who don't. The person with God's Spirit in chapter 2 understands what has been freely given by God. Also, the person with God's spirit understands spiritual things. That is, things that would otherwise be unknowable and incomprehensible. And Paul also says that the person without God's spirit cannot receive what comes from God and understands what comes from God only as, quote-unquote, foolishness. Here, Paul goes on now. He, in talking to people of the Spirit, that is, people who have God's Spirit, 
He calls them people of the flesh. There's a difference. Um, A Christian cannot have the spirit of God or cannot not have the spirit of God, right? Like that, again, is the difference uh, that Paul makes in chapter two. Uh, A person who's truly a Christian cannot not have the spirit of God dwelling in them, nor can a person who does not have the spirit of God actually be a Christian. Uh, So Paul here, because he's talking to Christians, he uses an entirely different word. Uh, We translate it, at least in this translation, as people of the flesh. Uh, The idea behind the word is that it is emphasizing their fleshness uh, over against their spiritness, right? Um, That is an understanding of the composite of a human being uh, is that we are made of certain things, right? There are multiple parts. Uh, There is the physical part, and there is the immaterial part. Uh, And so you might hear the human being described as uh, one who is body, soul, and spirit, right? And to be human means to to be or to possess all of those things um, together. Uh, When Paul is thinking about a spiritual person, I think he has the idea of someone who is a whole person, not just merely a fleshly human, but a person whose spirit has been regenerated, right? Brought back to life. We talked about that last week. Um, And that resurrection of the spiritual part of us enables that person the fullest expression of their humanity. And this new if we could call it wholeness, this whole new um, wholeness of the human experience is made possible by the indwelling of God's spirit, right? This is what happens when uh, a person receives God's spirit into their lives. Um, There's a sense in which that person is said to have God's spirit dwelling in them. Such a person could be called a spirit-filled person or more simply, in Paul's language here, a spiritual person. Uh, as an equation, if we were um, to write it out in mathematical terms, it might look something like this. A human plus the Holy Spirit equals a spiritual human. Uh, but Paul here, he calls them people of the flesh, right? And so the difference is... Um, something like a human plus nothing else equals a mere human. And that is the condition uh, that Paul is raising as problematic for people in the church. The fact that while, uh, while such people have God's spirit in them, they're actually acting as people who don't. Uh, Essentially, then, Paul is not saying that they are people who do not have God's spirit, but that they are acting as if they didn't. Um, It's sort of like when your older child begins acting like um, 
they had years and years before, right? And you say to your child, what are you, five? Right? You say to your 12-year-old, what, are, are, are you five years old? Right? Like you're just incredulous. So, and, and, and so stop acting like you're five. Uh, uh, <laughs> ever, you know, watch, you know, some human beings eat their food, right? Again, uh, just lessons we learn as parents oftentimes. Like, are, are you an animal? Like, what's wrong with you? Stop. If you're not an animal, stop acting like an animal. You know, it's thought that the Corinthian church had accused Paul of not communicating deeper wisdom to them. I mean, we've kind of been talking about this, um, this, this wisdom that sort of seemed to be the, the uh, have this great appeal for uh, the people of Paul's day. And, and, and then the church was not uh, precluded from the same desire, right? And so, uh, the, the Corinthian church, they had, it's like they had this idea that there was, there was a kind of wisdom uh, that they thought they were ready for and, and they thought they deserved, right? They thought they had grown into uh, something of the sort that there was, there was just more that, that Paul was refusing to give to them. Um, and so if this is the case, if the church was in fact accusing Paul of, you know, holding back, and, uh, and, and that they were not only capable of receiving more wisdom, but also deserved it. Well, then Paul justifies himself here in, this, uh, in chapter 3. And he actually retorts back and says, you know, in fact, the problem is you all are babies, um, now, Paul, he often talks about uh, a kind of paternal relationship that he has with people that he's brought into the faith, right? He sometimes describes himself as a father and those that, that he has brought into Christian faith, into allegiance to Jesus, he, he calls them children. And it's an endearing uh, way that he understands the dynamic of that relationship that he has with some Christians. But here, the use of the word babies is... Uh, it's certainly it's certainly pejorative. It's certainly judgmental, right? He says in verse two, "I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, since you were not yet ready for it. In fact, you are still not ready because you are still worldly." Now, interesting. Since you were not yet ready for it, he starts talking about um, what he has been able to deliver to them what they have been able to consume, right? And he uses the analogy of, of milk and of solid food uh, and says, not only were you not ready for it, you still are not ready for it. And Paul's giving us a glimpse into, I think, an important truth, and that is that everything that lives grows, uh, or develops into something, right? Everything that's alive is either growing or developing into something else. Um, this goes for the church. And so think about what Paul is saying to them as he considers this church, this living thing, 
um, and how they are growing and or developing. He says, you were people of the flesh. So he points back to a time, uh, probably when he first comes across the, the people of Corinth, right? He begins this work of God and this fledgling church is birthed, right? And people start becoming part of um, the kingdom of God in the city of Corinth. At that point, of course, right, like you would expect, I mean, they were, they were people of the flesh. They were, they were people that had just, just recently left their attachment to the world, right? They had, they had been living as mere humans. That's just the reality of the condition that they were found in when God found them. Not unlike any of us who have also um, come from a place where we lived as mere humans, you know, before we entered into a relationship with God. So you were people of the flesh. And he says, regarding the capacity that they had uh, for such things as spiritual truth, he says, you were not ready, right? He says, I fed you with milk and not with solid food because you were not ready. And now he fast forwards into the present moment and he says, guess what? After all of these years, you still are not ready. That somehow, with, even with the passage of time, there's been no transformation, Right, These people who were found as people living as mere humans, people of the flesh, fast forward years ahead, and guess what? They're still people of the flesh. And he says, you're still worldly. Um, the fact, again, that you and I were living means that we are growing and or developing uh, but the case with the Corinthian church was that instead of growing into spiritually mature people, right, which was one possible trajectory for their lives, right, when they came into a relationship with God and received God's spirit, uh, one possible end for their lives to be oriented toward and moving along was this, what Paul would describe as spiritual maturity, right? That was one possible alternative. But rather than maturing into that, they, uh, because you can't stay the same, you're going to grow and mature into something, they, they grew into something else, right? Instead of growing into spiritual maturity, they grew into something else. Why? Well, because maturation is going to happen. The question is, what are we going to mature into? Uh, the Corinthian church matured in the same way that the Bluth family matured in Arrested Development. If any of you have ever watched any of that series, um, the series chronicles a family of adults mostly, all of whom failed to develop. Right? Each of them possesses some particular kind of uh, personality trait or idiosyncrasy that demonstrates that while they had grown, they grew into something other than a mature um, and emotionally and relationally healthy contributing member of society. They each, they each possessed a babyish way about them that, um, that we watch and think is hilarious, but... 
The reality is if you had such people living in your home, you wouldn't find it hilarious at all, right? Because there's nothing funny about an adult who has maintained their babyish ways. And so Paul here in describing um, the failure to grow and become the spiritually mature Christian that God had intended for them to be, um, he points out their immaturity. And it's important for us to remember how this probably was received. Uh, The Corinthian church, when, when Paul described them as spiritually immature, their response could not possibly have been, Paul, you're right about that. Boy, were we, we've just been way off, right? Like, let's get this thing straightened out and let's, let's, let's reorient ourselves and let's get on the journey back towards spiritual maturity. No, they would have, they would have been astonished that Paul levied an accusation or a criticism like this, that Paul dared call the Corinthian church a place of spiritual babies. They would have been astonished. They would have been, um, they would have been utterly offended at such a criticism. As far as they were concerned, they were, they were beyond mature. You know, they, they had, they'd even, I think many of them had come to a place where they felt like they had outgrown the apostle Paul himself. Right, and, and this led to, uh, uh, in part, these various factions, these divisions in the church, one following one person, one following another, right? And on and on and on it went. Why? Well, because some had seen themselves as having outgrown the Apostle Paul. The fact that they were called spiritual babies would have been astonishing to them. Uh, that should be no surprise to us because, we, you know, it, it's rare for an immature person to agree with the person who's calling them immature at the moment that their immaturity is being pointed out, right? Have you ever been on either end of that? Pointing out uh, some behavior that you're observing that's clearly immature, and when you tell that person how immature they're being, well, how do they receive that? They receive it very maturely, right? No, never. Um, right? Because the problem is immaturity. <laughs> Immature people who fail to recognize their immaturity, they cut themselves off from what will help them change, what will help them to grow. They're going to see themselves as wise and mature. They're going to see themselves as as right. They're going to see themselves as justified. And so that in and of itself will ingrain their babyish ways. So Paul says, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food. I want to talk about that for a little bit because um, this analogy of milk and solid food uh, as an analogy for spiritual truth is one of the more poorly used texts by Christians who probably intend to mean well, but uh, will often use 
a verse like this to, uh, well, many of them, they'll use it as an excuse to leave their church. Uh, something like uh, the preacher is only giving us milk and we need more meat. Uh, The idea is, it kind of goes something like this, uh, um, that in a church we have people we might call beginner Christians uh, and they need easy stuff. They need easy stuff to digest like a baby needs milk. Um, the milk is beneficial because you don't have to chew it. It just, it just goes down, and it provides nutrition for the baby. But just like you wouldn't feed a baby milk forever, so um, this milk of teaching doesn't last forever. Eventually, you need to start introducing other foods, solid foods, um, and so it is that some people think that the idea of being a more mature Christian means um, that they need something more than what baby Christians need. All right? That's kind of uh, oftentimes how this, this idea of milk and solid food or milk and meat when it comes to the teaching, uh, teachings of the Bible, of spiritual truth, um, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I... Uh, I want to share some problems that I have with looking at the verse this way, and then I'll share what I think Paul is actually trying to get at. Um, One problem I have with this way of looking and separating within the church, you know, kind of categorizing people into, you know, baby Christians who need easy stuff and more advanced Christians who need the tougher stuff, um, is that it's it's a kind of classism That is exactly the thing Paul is trying to root out. (laughs) It's it's actually the very thing that Paul is dealing with here. This classism divides people according to what what level of knowledge some, some person or some group of people who have, you know, kind of set themselves up as uh, the judges of such things, uh, it divides people according to what level of knowledge they have attained and, 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 and this desire to have a deeper wisdom or a kind of wisdom that can be understood only by a relatively small group of people with specialized knowledge. In other words, you know, the, the people we might call the wisdom elitists It is exactly the thing that Paul is screaming out against. It's exactly the thing that he sees as dividing the church, right? Uh, People who see themselves as having possessed a higher level of wisdom or a deeper understanding of spiritual truth and then taking that advantage and and using it as a means to compare them against somebody that they can consider to not be in that same place. And in that evaluation, actually set up a hierarchy of value, right? People are prescribed a certain value depending on how, in the eyes of people, how spiritually mature they may be. And spiritual maturity, as it's defined by whatever the group happens to be that seems to be in control of such things. So, 
This classism is exactly the thing that Paul is trying to root out. Another problem is that um, it presumes that Paul is purposely hiding things. I just, I, I just want you to imagine for a moment if, if I came up here on some Sunday morning, right, and I said, listen, there are some things that I know that you don't know. And as much as I would love to be able to share them with you, come on, let's be honest. You're not ready for them. Like, who's excited to come back to church next Sunday morning and listen to that joker, right? Anybody? Does anybody want to sit under that? Of course not. And, and, and so there's this idea that, like, that, you know, Paul's just, like, he's kind of, like, in his, in his back pocket, he's got the good stuff. And, 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 and he's, he's kind of being a jerk, because he's not giving the good stuff to the church. But Paul was not purposely hiding things. And can you imagine Paul purposely hiding spiritual truths that he will explain only after he decides, right? Like Paul's going to set himself up in a position where, you know what? Listen, I'll tell you when you're ready for whatever. When he decides that a person has graduated from whatever the prerequisite wisdom course is that they need before they can kind of get to the next one. It's like, who is this guy, Mr. Miyagi? I know I'm stretching some of your television knowledge this morning, but some of you remember the scene, right? Wax on, wax off, paint the fence. I know, it's like the worst karate performance ever, but. What's Mr. Miyagi doing? He's, he's, he's instructing Daniel-san um, with certain defensive karate techniques, and Daniel doesn't know what's going on. All he sees this as laborious work that has no point to it, no purpose to it. Why? Oh, Mr. Miyagi, that wise old man, he, he knows he knows what the benefits are. Gonna, they, that's not what Paul's doing. Paul wasn't purposely hiding things. Thirdly, let's think about what Paul did already deliver to them. He said, um, way later on in this letter, chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, he says to the church, For I passed on to you as most important. Everybody say, as most important. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul passed on Already, what was most important? What could have been more important? What truth could have been more inexhaustible? How much time would you and I need to wrestle with 
and master the full impact of such spiritual truths as God became flesh. Chew on that one for a while. On the truth of how God humiliated himself before his own creation, whom he allowed to crucify him. And how this same God shared in the pain of our sufferings and the finality of our deaths and how his resurrection signals triumph over and eventual complete vanquishing of every kind of wickedness and evil. What could possibly follow after that? Like, when do you get to the end of those truths? When have you fully digested the depth and richness of what is most important? What is the deeper truth that you are looking for? If you're searching for a deeper wisdom, a deeper knowledge, ask yourself, have you mastered something like love your neighbor as yourself? Have you figured that one out yet? Like when you get there, call me, email me, invite me over because I'd love to know how you did it. And I'd love for you to help me as well. When I'm tempted to think that I am ready for deeper wisdom, a deeper knowledge, I can ask myself, have I mastered an awareness that everything I have Every penny that's tied to my name, it actually belongs to God and not to me. Have I figured that one out yet? Have you mastered the idea of laying up treasure for yourself in heaven and not here in this world? You see, there's, there's plenty. There's plenty for us to work on and to work through and to understand that, you know, until which time we can actually profess that we have mastered some of the more simple things that Jesus has asked us to do, like put others before yourself, like crucify yourself, lay down your own life, take up your cross and follow me. To one, he said, sell everything you have, give the money to the poor and then come and follow me. Like abandon everything. When, when we figured those kinds of things out, well, um, well, maybe, that, maybe then we can have, you know, a, a sense that we've, that we've made it, that we've arrived. And so in this analogy of the milk and the solid food that Paul is talking about, what we need to understand is that the milk and the meat are actually the same thing, right? It's not about, um, you know, that there are like two different sets of information, one that's reserved for the baby Christian, and one that's reserved for the more spiritually mature Christian. No, the milk and the meat, the milk and the solid food, they are actually the same thing. You know, it's not that Paul wasn't equipped to teach the deepest truths or that he is purposely withholding the deepest truths. The problem is that the Corinthian church, because of their immaturity, they are unable to actually digest it. The pure and simple gospel, when we talk about that thing, right? Like, just think about the good news, the gospel, the truth of God. It is at the very same time, like milk, 
for the one who is newly coming to Christ. And at the very same time, it's like solid food for the one who has been with him for many, 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 many years. It's the same thing. Morna Hooker said, uh, Paul does not have two different diets to offer. <laughs> the difference between the true food of the gospel and the substitute food that the Corinthians prefer is the issue. It's not what Paul had to offer. It's the manner in which the Corinthians were actually digesting what truth was being delivered to them. So the milk and the meat are the same thing. Paul goes on. Now he, he elaborates uh, based on what he sees within their community. He says in verse 3, For since there is envy and strife among you, are you not worldly and behaving like mere humans? You see, the problem is not what little knowledge they were being given, but what little they were doing with the knowledge they had been given. The problem isn't that they're human. God loves humans. Humans are great. The problem is that they were being merely human. Paul looks at what they are doing, and he provides an evaluation based on that. And he says of them, they are worldly. That's his assessment. He says, you are still worldly. That's interesting because in verse 1, um, Paul describes them as people of the flesh. And the Greek word there is sarkonos. Um, and it... it, it emphasizes what a person is made of, right? That we are made up of fleshy material. We're fleshy people. Not, we are not, we're not, a, we're not a spiritual person, right? Like, holy, like there's a physical reality to what it means to be human. And, and, and so uh, people of the flesh, the idea behind that is they're, um, they're, they're living as if they're just merely human, as if they're just merely flesh and nothing else. You know, something like um, a bunch of random atoms <laughs> in the cosmic sphere of the universe, right? Here, so that word is sarkonos. Here, Paul describes them as sarkikos, a word that's similar, but emphasizes something different. Here, there's more of an ethical implication where it describes what a person is characterized by, right? So there's the, in the first place, the idea that they are human. Here, they are being assessed based on what characteristics they are exhibiting as humans. And they're being criticized for that. Because again, they're acting merely human. So Paul, what Paul is criticizing them for is not being human, but being merely human. He knows that there are those in the world who do not have God's spirit and therefore are unable to know and comprehend spiritual things, right? That's what we talked about last week. But here he lays out the travesty committed by the church at Corinth, by those that were in this church who indeed actually had God's spirit, but acted in the same way as others who don't have God's spirit. They're showing by how they're behaving, whether they are merely human or spiritual. 
Their behavior is not what you would attribute to the Holy Spirit, but rather what you would attribute to the fallen world from which they came. The fallen world which promotes things like envy and rivalry. The envy and rivalry that you would witness in many, many spheres in the outside world was the very thing that you were finding characterized by the church at Corinth. People were using the church to advance their own interests instead of being a place where Jesus is honored and loved through the vehicle of loving and honoring and caring for others. They were guilty of being consumed by a love for themselves and for their own, like their own tribe, their own people. We see examples of this kind of spiritual immaturity in the Gospels exhibited by the disciples themselves, right? In one case, the disciples, we're told, began to argue among themselves about who was the greatest. At one point, a mother and her sons tried to secure positions on Jesus' right hand and on his left hand when he established his kingdom. And so Jesus takes these kinds of things and he turns them upside down when he delivers the truth that in his kingdom, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. The disciples demonstrated their spiritual immaturity when at one point they asked Jesus because uh, they weren't received in a particular Samaritan town They asked Jesus, hey, Jesus, would you like for us to call down fire from heaven? How many of you have ever done that before? The sad thing is there's Christians that do that today. There are people that have that attitude toward others, right? There are people that rejoice at the sufferings that the ungodly endure, and are so happy to attribute what sufferings they're enduring to their own wickedness and ungodliness. The response rather should be brokenheartedness, a grieving at the loss that is occurring in the life of a person who doesn't know God and doesn't know the peace of God that he offers to every one of us. And so Jesus, we're told in the gospel, he turns and rebukes them for the attitude that they have toward those who had rejected him. Peter tries to tell Jesus how how it is (laughs) instead of the other way around. Many of you know what Jesus said to him. Jesus said the way he was thinking was like the way the devil himself thinks. He says priorities were all misaligned. He didn't understand the priorities of Jesus' kingdom. He had gotten them all mixed up. And finally, the disciples, we find them over and over again failing to understand Jesus' teachings. And Jesus patiently cautions them that their spiritual senses are not keen and their way of thinking was still too much like the world's way of thinking. I have a couple things as we close for us to consider. Um, We talk about such things as this. I mean, I wonder what's at stake. 
Like what, what is at stake when it comes to either remaining as spiritually immature people and a spiritually immature church as opposed to what does it mean for us to actually become spiritually mature people? What does it mean for us to grow into a spiritually mature church? The question for me is, am I growing as a spiritual person or am I growing into something else, right? Because I'm growing. Am I growing into a spiritual person or am I growing into something else, something that is just merely human? Immature attitudes and behaviors are expressions of immaturity. And they also, at the same time, they foster more immaturity, right? Uh You take a toddler who throws himself or herself down on the ground, has a temper tantrum, right? What is that? That's an expression of immaturity. That's showing how immature the toddler is. Like, that's not not a reasonable way for a person to communicate. But it's, it's the toddler's way. It makes sense at the age of a toddler. Um. But how do we handle that, right? So while there's an expression of immaturity, uh, listen, if every single time your toddler throws a tantrum, you give in to whatever that toddler wants, what are you going to do? You're going to create a future adult that's going to continue to throw temper tantrums. There's people out there like that. I don't know if you know that. Pretty good chance there's some in the room, right? Like, where does that temper tantrum come from? It's, it's something hasn't grown, something hasn't developed, something hasn't matured. So what of my attitude or my behavior needs to change? What, what do I need to stop? Paul uses the examples that he witnesses in the church of jealousy and strife. And if there's jealousy, I need to thank God. I need to start thanking God for the blessings of other people. Instead of having an attitude of jealousy toward them, I need to start, I actually need to start practicing gratefulness for how God has blessed others. And then I also need to reflect better on how God has blessed me as well. If it's strife, I need to stop sowing discord. I need to stop being the kind of person that just loves to create tension and strife and problems, right? Some of you work with people like that. And you can't stand it. Some of you go to school with people like that, always stirring the pot, always trying to get something going, not for any real redemptive purpose, but simply for their own enjoyment. If it's self-centeredness, I need to, what I need to do is I need to actively put somebody else first. I need to make a habit of my life figuring out and answering the question, how will I put somebody else first today? How will I put another person's needs before my own? this very day. If it's judgment, if it's a tendency to be judgmental and critical of others, where it's easy to look at and see what's wrong with everybody else, then I need to learn how to practice true empathy. And then when we consider who we are as a church, we have to ask ourselves, how will we build our church into a place where worldly priorities are toppled and the order of things is turned upside down. If the world prioritizes hurry, well, let's here be in less of a hurry around other people and in God's presence. If the world prioritizes material gain and economic security, 
Let's be a place of sincere faith and lavish generosity. If the world prioritizes tribalism, where outsiders are treated as less thans, let's instead, let us be a place that welcomes the stranger, a place that is not afraid to engage the one who is different. If the world prioritizes conformity, let's be a place that graciously but firmly pushes against the mainstream and the status quo. Let's remember anyone that the world forgets and casts off as unimportant. Let's take up the cause of the one who is vulnerable. And instead of thinking about what we might get out of the church, let's instead think about how we can invest ourselves into it.